Welcome to Constitutionally Speaking, a podcast about the United States Constitution, early American history, and political philosophy. My name is Jay Cost, and with me is my co-host, Luke Thompson. And this week, we are continuing our series, looking at Congress on a detailed level. Last week's episode, we looked at the Congress as it was created at the Constitutional Convention, the structure, the outline that the founders had established for Congress. This week, we're going to look at the Congress as it comes to develop in the early years of the Republic. And Luke, I think at the outset, it's important to remind our listeners that there really is very little the Constitution says about how Congress is supposed to function. It establishes the relationships between Congress and the other branches and enumerates the powers that Congress possesses. But in terms of how Congress operates on a day-to-day basis, the framers really didn't say anything at all, did they? No, they really don't. Um, you know, if you read uh, Article One of the Constitution, um, it, it's highly formalistic uh, in terms of what, what it lays out, but it's, it's form without a whole ton of substance. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is they delegate to the future. That is to say, they leave to the Congresses once, once constituted um, a lot of power to set their own rules and parameters and behaviors, right? So, you know, the if you look at the first four sections of Article One, they're all about selecting and qualifying members and, and how that should go about. And then when you get to section five and you dig into powers and duties, even then the powers and duties that they, they focus on, they don't rush into enumerated, enumerating a bunch of powers, but rather enumerating a bunch of authorities that the, that the houses of Congress have to manage their own membership, uh, obligations to do, um, you know, to keep a journal, quorum requirements, things like that. Um, and, and, you know, you don't really get to meat and potatoes, so to speak, until you get to section eight and the powers of Congress, you know, together, as opposed to the processes, procedures of Congress, selection mechanisms, rights and disabilities, et cetera. Uh, so yeah, you have, you know, compared to the, the judiciary or the executive in many ways, article one is very detailed and enumerated and, and, and precise, but, uh, the way those things get implemented is left pretty wide open. Um, you know, it says they're going to choose their own officers, but it, for instance, doesn't require that there be officers of any certain type, right? Those are, uh, you know, th- there's going to be a speaker of the house. We know that, but, you know, they don't, they don't say you're going to have a majority leader, a minority leader, uh, whips, et cetera, um, conference chairs. None of that stuff is in the constitution. And so, um, it leaves a bunch of the the basic operational self governance of the legislative branch up to the future legislative branch to set within the parameters of of a handful of majority uh, decision rules and selection requirements. Yeah, and that's what makes the first con- Congress such an interesting. If you're looking for an interesting subject in early American history or early, you know. 18th century America, an often overlooked subject is the first Congress. I mean, if you're looking for a really interesting thing to 
read about the first Congress is interesting because there was really nothing there. And it just creates an opportunity for various politicians to seize power, really, for lack of a better word. And, you know, probably when we're talking about seizing power, we're talking about not nothing illegal. We're talking about taking advantage of the ambiguities inherent to the Constitution. So an example of power having been seized that we're all familiar with, I would say, is Marbury versus Madison and the power of judicial review. This is not something that's spelled out in the Constitution. I mean, clearly, Constitution envisions the courts having a say in the meaning of the Constitution, but it doesn't say anything about the courts having the final say, which is really what Marshall establishes. So we get something like this in the early Congress, especially in the first session of the first Congress, because this is before there really are any party divisions. There had been party divisions during the ratification period because of Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists. There are some Anti-Federalists in Congress, for instance, Richard Henry Lee in the Senate. But by and large, the elections of 1788 into 89 are just a bloodbath for the anti-federalists. And so you get this collection of men in the first Congress who all at the who have a really a nationalistic outlook, a federalist outlook. But who's gonna lead them? Well, what we see is some really interesting developments. What we see in the set in the house. James Madison really becomes the first leader of the House of Representatives. And he doesn't do this in the way that a Jefferson might have done this. Jefferson would have been able to take advantage of his continental reputation as a leader of the revolutionary movement. I mean, this is where Jefferson is able to wield an enormous amount of political power throughout his his time in the United States from, you know, his return from France in 1788 until his retirement uh, to back to Monticello in 1809. Jefferson has this, you know, larger than life image. Madison doesn't have anything like that, but Madison is trusted by the president, President Washington. And I'll give you an example of that in a moment. And he's also just the hardest worker. And we talked about this. We, we talked about this last week. The amount of work these men are able to do is absolutely staggering what they are able to do. And Madison comes in having done an enormous amount of work already. So the first thing that needs to be done is they need an impost or tariff law. Well, Madison already knows all the details of the tariff schedules throughout the 13 states. He already knows what the uh, failed impost of 1783, what those rates would have been. So here he is with a tariff law. Another example of Madison's ability to just work harder than everybody else is the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights, you would think for how much we in 2021, debate the meaning of every phrase in the Bill of Rights. You would think that the first Congress would have been realized that this was the most important thing that they were going to do, and they were going to debate it in detail. 
They did no such thing. They didn't want to deal with it in large measure because they were Federalists. The Federalists were ho-hum at best on a Bill of Rights. They had agreed to amendments to the Constitution for the sake of placating moderate anti-Federalists and people generally on the fence. Madison, however, takes this as a serious task. And what he does, again, it's extraordinary. What he does is he takes this very large number of proposed amendments that come out of Massachusetts and New Hampshire and South Carolina and Virginia and New York, and he whittles them down into what were basically 12 proposed amendments to the Constitution. And it Considering how much Congress, the first Congress, debates the details of the impost, which, you know, adjusting schedules for, say, brads and wooden spikes or whatever, they do very little work with the Bill of Rights. And I think it's an interesting illustration of just how unformed the early Congress is because they kick it off to a committee, but it's not a standing committee. It's a temporary committee designed to deal with this problem. That was usually the way they dealt with policy questions in the Continental Congress. They would create ad hoc committees or what we today would call select committees in the contemporary Congress. They kick it off to that. And Madison has to basically hector them into, um, into creating the Bill of Rights. Madison, meanwhile, is also serving as essentially George Washington's chief of staff, for lack of a better term, because Washington doesn't have very much of anything. I mean, when Washington is inaugurated as the first president of the United States, he basically can just go home because the job of the president is to enforce the laws and there's, there are no laws and there's no cabinet departments. And so Washington and trying to figure out issues of executive protocol, who does he rely upon? He relies upon James Madison and get this very peculiar. I think it's one of my favorite stories about Madison is that Madison was instrumental in writing Washington's at first inaugural address. If you look at that, it is largely the work of Madison. I don't remember his name, but Washington had rejected, basically rejected a draft that his secretary had made. Okay. But the House of Representatives writes a response to Washington's inaugural address, which is written mainly by James Madison. So you have this very bizarre situation where James Madison is basically talking with himself. But that was the way in which the early government could operate because there were so few rules. It created opportunities for men who had ambition and men who had vigor and intelligence to grab the we the the reins of power. And the flip side of the story is that often it's one thing to to try to grasp them. It's another thing entirely to actually do it, which reminds me, Luke, I don't know if you want to tell our audience about the sad story of Vice President John Adams and his monumental disappointment with being the president of the Senate. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. You, you. 
Well, Adams, so as as I'm sure most of our listeners know, you know, the vice presidency doesn't really even need to exist on a constitutional level. They just created the office as, as a way to, you know, the first and second place finishers in the electoral college. It doesn't even make it clear that the vice president becomes president if the president should die. I mean, that's the only good thing that John Tyler did. Well, he did two good things. He annexed Texas. And the other thing he did was that when William Henry Harrison died, John Tyler went out and said, I'm the president. Right. So the vice presidency is just a very it's a very peculiar office. And and what Adams is his really his only formal task is to manage debate or to preside he's the presiding officer of the senate and it's important i think to bear in mind that makes him the president of the senate which sounds like it's a big deal but historically the word president was not a big deal which is why they chose that title for the chief executive of the united states the president is merely in the 1700s the presiding officer so Adams is the pr- president of the Senate, and he has the te- the role, the duty, the task of um, breaking ties. But beyond that, it's up to him to try and turn this office into something. And he wants to use his perch in the Senate to control debate and to basically become, in many respects, what we would think of as the Speaker of the House. His problem is that the first Senate is having absolutely none of it. The first Senate has people like Robert Morris and Oliver Ellsworth and Richard Henry Lee and Philip Schuyler. And I don't remember, I think Rufus King is in there. I could be wrong about that. Um, They're just not having any of it. Um, And I, I can't remember the name of the senator from Pennsylvania who kept a diary which is really one of the only sources we have about the early Senate because the Senate, they had a formal journal, but there was no recording. There was all the debates were happening in private, but the, the journal entries, I can't, uh, I'm blanking on his name. I've used his journal so many times in my research, but just complain about how Adams would just go on and on and on. And just the Senate would just roll its eyes. And ultimately Adams was just, basically like shunted aside as a figurehead as part of his absolute misery in government in the 1790s was to be stuck in the in the United States Senate as the president and then elected president in 1796 but really being the last in true independent president I would argue but anyway so yeah the senate ends up evolving differently in that regard the senate from the very beginning, is much more individualistic than the House. You can see that right off the bat, that they're not having anything to do with Adams grabbing the reins of power. And in the the House, as Luke mentioned, the Constitution says that the House will elect its speaker. The first speaker of the House was Frederick Mullenberg from Pennsylvania. I think he was a Revolutionary War officer. Um, but he does he's not anything approaching a party leader, not anything approaching like what Nancy Pelosi is today, or even go back 120 years, what a guy like Joe Cannon would be like. Yeah, I, I mean, there's... 
you know, the, the model for somebody sitting over a deliberative body that they have in mind is Washington's role in the Constitutional Convention, right? Or, or the various speakers of the state legislatures that they've either served in or, or been familiar with or argued in front of. And, you know, party leaders in a legislative chamber derive their power, they derive their authority from everybody acknowledging membership in, in a party, right? In a faction. Um, and those parties having internally agreed upon selection mechanisms to determine their officers, right? So um, in, in the absence of those things, you wind up with cliques, you wind up with groups of friends, you wind up with regionalism. There's lots and lots of regionalism, right? Even in the house, but really there's just a lot of milling around. Um, and unlike in the Senate where, you know, one, you have some giant egos there, right? I mean, Philip Schuyler, who, you know, who, who Jay mentioned is God, probably what a top three or four landowner in the United States. Oh, had to have been, Um, had to have been, you know, I mean, I mean, do genuinely imagine if you had like a Bill Gates and a Jeff Bezos in the Senate, right there. And, and, and that's, that's who's there while still running their companies. Right. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of ego, um, and they're not going to be tractable when it comes to, um, to sort of Adams at the same time, you know, they are going to become important as the executive branch gets built out and they have to, you know, confirm people nominees for generalships and secretary and, you know, departmental heads and things like that. They'll become important, but that's, that takes some time. They've got to legislate the creation of those things first. Um, and so, you know, and then again, they also get to say whatever they want because their, their journal is recording their roll call votes, but they're not recording the debates, which means these guys can do a lot more speculative stuff. Um, I, I don't actually know why the house was a, pub, a matter of public record, but the Senate was not Jay. Do you? I don't, I'm not sure why, but I think it probably had to do with the attitude at the time, especially with respect to the house, because it was the people's. It was the people's house. It was popularly elected. Um, and you could also sit in and watch the house. I think there was a general commitment to openness with respect to the to the House of Representatives um, that the Senate did not feel obligated to do. I think I think that the early model that they had in mind for the Senate, I, really, in a lot of respects, especially like you said, Luke, if you look at the people who are in the United States Senate in the first Congress are going to be large landowners or otherwise prominent men, and they are going to be sympathetic to John Adams's view of the role of the Senate uh, being a place for the wealthy and the aristocratic class to temper the 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 unruly teeming masses who are represented in the house they're going to take that role very seriously and i think they're going to have a lot they're going to see themselves more like on almost kind of roman senate than we would take it today i mean there are some at you still see some aspects of that like for instance senators get their own desks and they do individual roll call votes now and senators form gangs to make legislation outside of the committee system so there is a kind of individuality to the senate that is a holdover but i think that you know there was a real aristocratic flavor to that 
group of men. Well, and especially since say. there were 26 of them, right? So. Yeah. They're, and, and not even right away because North Carolina doesn't join the union right away. Um, I don't, their senators don't come until the fall of 1789 and Rhode Island doesn't come until I think that, I don't think they, they don't ratify, I think until the spring of 1790. So you have like at the first meeting, and on top of which, not everybody is going to show up because this is the 1780s and people are delayed for whatever reasons. So it's going to be a very, very small group of people. I mean, you've probably been to parties that seemed like intimate gatherings that were larger than the number of people in the United States Senate in the spring of 1789. I would. Yeah, say. I mean, if you've got if you've got 11 or 12 people that are consistently in agreement, right? You're you're now you've got the Senate. Like, yeah, exactly. That's it at this point. And yeah. so it's it's essentially if you've got a large you know, or or even really two groups of five or six can do it. So it doesn't it doesn't take a lot. Yeah, and from in an the interpersonal er- standpoint. To, and in the early the Right. And in the early Senate, you know, with you had um, 11 states had ratified. So that's 22 senators. If you have 11 senators, you have a quorum. Right. Which is like nothing. 11 people, it's nothing. So, yeah. So the Senate ends up developing. um, You know, the other thing I would point out about the early Senate as well is that they took seriously the idea of. Uh, molding the legislation created by the house. So the house and, and a lot of people sort of, you know, one of the interesting things that um, as writing the biography of James Madison, people being confused about why he breaks from Hamilton. One of the theories was, Oh, he was jealous. He didn't get picked for the cabinet. He lost the Senate seat to Richard Henry Lee. You know, he, his political power had decreased that's really um, nonsense. It, it really misunderstands the relationship between the House and the Senate in the seventh in the first Congress. It really is sort of taking the Senate as it exists today, as individual senators being more important than House members, and and taking it back in time because most of the major pieces of legislation, the cre- the, uh, the the Bill of Rights. The, the first impost, the creation of the three major departments, Treasury, State, and War, all of them, most of the work is done in the House. It's really only the, the creation of the court system, which is uh, Oliver Ellsworth, who's a senator from Connecticut, is instrumental in creating the Judiciary Act of 1789 to mold the courts. But most of the energy in government in in, in until Hamilton is in the House of Representatives, which, by the way, I would add, that's I think that's how everybody thought it was supposed to be, right? These, and it's important again to to bear in mind that you know while we think of the the founders as elites in the sense that they had a narrow definition, a much more narrow definition of citizenship than we do. They were in many respects more Republican than we were in the sense that they thought that citizenship was a much more important duty and that the voice of the citizenry needed to be respected in ways that I don't really think we we might 
like to tell ourselves that we think that, but I don't think we do. And so I think that there was a natural consensus, unspoken consensus that the house was going to be the center of governmental activity, that that, that was just the way it was going to be. The house was going to be the, the agent, the will of the, the expression of the people's will that then had to be modified by the Senate and then overseen by the president. Yeah, and, and underpinning all of this, and this is pretty important, um, I guess, and probably bears being really explicit about, is in addition to not having a coherent notion of parties, even as they're beginning to develop, um, right, and even as they've just had intense factional conflict over ratification, um, they, they are not, they don't see, they don't see governance in the kind of zero-sum terms that, that we tend to see it. So, you know, a term like political capital would have been meaningless to them, right? Something that you spend down over time that you derive through the legitimacy of, of winning an election. That's that's not the way they thought about things at all. Um, instead, you know, they they probably it would be more accurate to say see governing as a division of labor across different roles in order to do equal justice by different interests, right? And so, um, you know, there are there are variable means depending on the 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 function demanded of an institution and the structure of that institution by which institutions engage in the process of deriving um deriving what that you know what that equal justice is right but they don't see you know they don't see that the that the senate is invariably going to be in competition with the house is invariably going to be in competition with the chief executive. Now, there's a lot in the Federalist Papers where people are talking about, you know, different branches and different leaders being jealous of their liberties and powers and, and prerogatives. And so they're, they're not naive to the fact that you might wind up with a, you know, a suboptimal equilibrium in which people pursuing their vision of the general good might through disagreement or more likely in their minds, you know, corruption uh, of one of one set of people uh, come into conflict, right? And, and, and pursue a sort of conflictual way of, of things. But, you know, it would be unimaginable today for a cabinet secretary to go down to Congress and, you know, hash out details around a new law affecting that cabinet secretary's um, department. Instead, what we have is underlings get shunted into hearings, which are almost entirely, you know, show pony exercises for members of Congress to get video clips to go into campaign fundraising ads. Um, but in the in in the early Congress, that's not what's going on. In the first Congress, especially, that's not what's happening at all. Instead, in the first Congress, you have you know very fluid roles. Um, as Jay says, you know, Madison is providing you know essentially a, a, a personnel management service to the president, even as he's in Congress. Um, and, you know, uh, Hamilton, and we'll get to Hamilton in a moment, but Hamilton is down in Congress all the time in the, in the well of the, in the house, not the well of the house, but in the house, um, working directly with the legislature to craft legislation. And, and these are just the sort of ossifying rules I'm putting, I'm doing sneer quotes around rules that we have in terms of where and what different office holders do and, and more importantly, don't do. 
um, in terms of, say, even the geography of being seen to go to the House or go to the Senate or come to the White House, et cetera, that, that kind of formalism, departmentalism, and theatricality all intersecting is completely absent from this period of time. Yeah, that's right. That's right, Luke. That's an excellent point. And and I think it leads to, well, one of the reasons why we have a lot of this, um, and let, let me start again. I, I would say the fluidity was in large measure because there were no organized political parties that existed. But beyond that, in the first Congress, in the first let me be very precise. In the first session of the first Congress, there were very few ideological differences between the members. There was a general consensus that the courts had to be organized in a sensible way, that the executive departments needed to be created. I'm Now, there were close votes. Some of the votes were close. Like, for instance, the question of whether or not the president has the power to remove uh, heads of the executive departments was a close vote. And there were different views about, well, what did the constitution imply? It was a tie vote in the Senate. Unsurprisingly, senators felt like the president should have to come back to the Senate if he wanted to fire, fire somebody. And Adams breaks the tie in favor of giving the president sole discretion, probably in with an eye to a future presidential position himself. And it's ironic because Adams ends up inheriting Washington's cabinet, which was full of high federalists whom he should have all fired. And he didn't do that. Very ironic. But what we see here early on is fluidity in large measure, not just because there's no political parties, but organized political parties, but there had been party conflict of a kind in during ratification. It's that the one party, the anti-federal party, had been more or less eradicated. And what we see with Hamilton in January of 1790, we begin to see an ideological conflict that is multidimensional. And it's, it's you know, the first Congress, like I say, it's a fascinating, fascinating study full of ironies, like Adams I mentioned ago. But another example of an irony would be Madison had been worried that it was going to be the Congress that was going to dominate the executive branch. He felt that the politics of Congress would just give it an edge over the presidency. And so one of the things Madison does during the first session is try to beef up the protective defenses of the executive branch. So Madison is the one of the top advocates for the idea that the president, um, because he has uh, the responsibility to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, that must imply the right of the president to fire executive officials. That being one. Madison, likewise, um, is insistent that the Treasury, the powers of the Treasury Department be held in a single person. Robert Morris, who had been the superintendent of finance for a portion of the revolutionary period, had got had always kind of been a little controversial or more than a little, a little on the oligarchic side. But, hey, the guy put up his own money for the revolution. So what do you want? But they had 
gotten rid of because of the controversy surrounding Morris, they had gotten rid of a single superintendent and created a board of free people. And, and some people argued, well, you know, the power of the treasury department is so great. We need to divide the power up with the, with the board. Madison says, no, we're not, we can't do that. That's a bad idea. So the treasury department is run by a single secretary. Another thing Madison does is there's this question of whether or not the treasury secretary should submit reports to Congress. And some people say, no, that he shouldn't do that because then who's setting the agenda there? It's going to be the treasury secretary. Madison is thinking, oh, okay, maybe that's a fair point, but also the treasury secretary is going to know what's going on with the country's finances. And we need to know what's going on with the country's finances here in Congress. So just like kind of as an extension of the state of the union address, which by the way, was the state of the union address was literally supposed to be, here's what's going on in the country Congress. Here's how much money we've collected. Here's what's here. Here's what's here. Here's the things I think you should do as opposed to just some big stupid campaign speech now that nobody watches except, you know, cable news addicts. And so Madison sort of sees it in that same kind of vein where we need the treasury secretary to tell us what's going on. And so what happens, Madison inadvertently creates the groundwork for the most visionary, the hardest working, the most polarizing person in the early portion of American history to come to dominate the body politic, which Alexander Hamilton does more or less without interruption from 1790 until 1795. And it begins with the first report on public credit, which is released to the second session of the first Congress in January 1792, which is where we begin to see ideological divisions that have to do with a number of factors. And I don't want to get too deep into all of them. I want to focus particularly on the institutional factor. But before we do that, you know, just sort of sort of kind of an illustration here is that Hamilton's system of finance was very farsighted. Hamilton, just in broad brushstrokes, Hamilton recognized that the long-term success of the government was going to require the rich to believe in the government and to effectively invest in the government. And so Hamilton wanted to get buy-in from the wealthy. And he had a number of ways to do this through the public debts and through national bank and through industrial protection. The challenge though, is that the kind of wealth he has in mind is paper wealth, bills of credit, uh, government debt. It's not in land, which is where the bulk of the country's wealth on a per capita basis, the average American, insofar as they hold wealth, their wealth is going to be held in land. So this is going to create a division between different kind of capital owners, which is going to be stark in when you compare it, what they called the East. So if you read the old debates and things like that, they'll call it the East. Today, we would think of it as the North. We would think of it as the, the Northern businessmen, particularly in Philadelphia, New York, and Boston. So merchants and shippers and bankers, such as there were, are going to be big winners in Hamilton's system. The losers are going to be the agri- basically everybody else, which is going to be the overwhelming majority of the country is going to be agricultural. Now, Hamilton's argument 
And his true argument was that in the long run, the whole country was going to be better off. But in the short run, it all pointed in a single direction. So this ends up drawing the ire of Madison in particular, who believes in his bones that the benefits and burdens of government should be evenly distributed. So that's the ideological, that's the policy dimension. But since we're talking particularly here about Congress, what we need to focus on is the institutional dimension. Because what Hamilton ends up doing is he uses the power of the Treasury Department to, as Luke said a moment ago, he's on the floor of the House, so to speak. He's got a cadre of House members who are voting lockstep with him. And by the way, all of these guys, not coincidentally, stand to make a killing on his economic uh, program. And what does this look like? to uh, a civic Republican like Madison. This is going to harken back to him uh, the kind of complaints of the country Whigs, the financial system of Walpole, but more broadly, this idea, this, this criticism after the Glorious Revolution, the king, the, the, the crown had lost many of its formal powers over parliament, but the country Whig argument went the crown had patronage, which they could use to basically buy votes in parliament. This is not particularly a controversial thing as to whether or not it existed. David Hume agreed with, you know, Bolingbroke and, you know, Cato, Trenchard and Gordon said, yeah, he can do it. And thank God he can, said David Hume, you know, in the 1740s. But this is where we begin to see Madison realizing that he had kind of misjudged the power relations and Madison never having been much of a student of executive power like Hamilton had been realizes, Oh, the executive branch is interfering in legislative affairs. And that ends up becoming a spur to the development of congressional institutions. Yeah, it it's so you know, it, it's one of these fascinating inflection points where you can try to see things through the eyes of both men, and you can see that there's a the the anxieties and the concerns driving both of them are both are legitimate, and they're also both instrumental, right? If you're Hamilton and you're looking at this this Senate, this first Senate full of you know titans of of landowning and business and generals and, and Skyler was his and father your father-in-law too, yeah. Yeah, you're, yeah you know um and you're you're looking around and you're saying okay um you know we need these guys on side the minute they stop showing up to this is the minute that we have um is the minute we have a real problem right like you know what's you know what's worse than having generals in the congress having generals gathering their armies outside the congress <laughs> yeah right yeah and yeah. so, so Matt, so, so Hamilton's like very attuned to this. He's, he's legitimately concerned about this and, and he knows the kind of trouble rich people can get up to. And I think I'll, I'll take a quick detour on this because I think this gets underappreciated about Hamilton or sometimes gets miscast as cynicism. You know, Madison, I don't think was naive about the trouble that rich people can get up to, but to, to him, Madison did not have the kind of experience with liquid wealth that Hamilton did. That's absolutely correct. The, the, the wealthy, there's, there's a linear relationship for Madison and his experience between how much you own and how wealthy you are. But the more you own, the more 
obligations naturally sort of accrue with that. The more uh, the more you kind of get nailed down, right? If I'm adding more plots of land adjacent to my existing plots of land, or even if I'm buying entirely separate plantations, the next county or two counties over, that's not making my life simpler. And it's not reducing the number of transaction costs that I'm having to pay. Right. right? Or if I could just interrupt, or in terms of adding slaves, for instance, is because, you know, the Madisons by like 1800, that Montpelier had about a hundred slaves. And the, the, the economic problem that Madison runs into by the end of his life is that the slaves are, they all got old and they weren't, they, they weren't productive. And so Madison was ended up kind of the slave community on Montpelier in many respects becomes a retirement community. That, that, so the idea of obligations here, especially in the Southern context, especially among the more humane slave owners, the ones who aren't going to want to like break families up and breed slaves and do all those really horrible things that were happening. It ends up being, you know, like Luke's exactly right. You know, owning stuff creates obligations. So George Washington is one of the wealthiest people in the country, but don't, he doesn't have 10 bucks to lend you. Right. And, and so by contrast, so, you know, when you're that, when your money is that pinned down, you can get up to trouble, but you can only get up to so much trouble in so many places, right? Um, contrast that to, you know, what somebody with a liquid fortune or some boats can get up to, right? And we, we see this in, in, you know, the 1790s with, with Citizen Ganey, right? He shows up with cash and a lot or a line of credit, and he's able to create lots of problems, even though he doesn't have any land, right? Yeah. And, and Hamilton coming from his merchant background and his background in, in, in the Caribbean, he knows that like wealthy people with disposable income, um, to include his father-in-law, who is also a land magnate, but especially in New York City, in Philadelphia, in Boston, in Baltimore, these trading merchants, if they're not on your team, if they're not bought into the system, they have the instrumentalities necessary to create huge problems in the in in the way that a hyper anchored landed gentry simply does not. Yeah. Um, and and I think that so so Madison is largely naive to this danger. Do I you think, think, Luke? Do you think a good analog of the, tr- the 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 troublemaking that wealthy people can get into for governments is in a lot of respects the example of modern Greece from like 10 years ago, the Greek debt crisis. I would go, I would actually say, I think we could do something a little closer to home, which is, you know, there is a discomfort with modern technology billionaires Mm -hmm. that's over and above the sort of quintessential American, you know, cultural, culturally democratic hostility to the very wealthy. Mm-hmm. Because so much of what they've made is is admirable in the way that you know railroad magnates were admirable and, and energy magnates were admirable, right? But it also um, was it's dematerialized, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, Amazon maybe a little bit less than some of the others, but you know, given that Amazon runs all these these server farms and, and that it's much more than just a logistics delivery service, you know, Google is hugely wealthy. It is is a giant wealth creator, but it's it's just you know, it's a search engine, uh, yeah. right? 
Facebook. Um, think, think of these things and the way people respond to them with a little bit of discomfort because they don't quite know how to anchor an understanding of the, the political economy of, of a dematerialized, you know, mega wealthy corporation that's headed by some individual that owns a large share of it, right? That's, that's something very different from, uh, you know, a, a 20th century or 19th century industrialist, just as in the late 18th century, um, you know, the rising liquid merchant class that is trading in the triangular trade and also smuggling and moving up and down uh, the continent and through the Caribbean, these guys are also something different from a kind of landed gentry that understands itself and understands its own political economy entirely in terms of English notions of feudal and late feudal aristocracy, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not a coincidence that in 1776, you have the revolution break out and Adam Smith writes the wealth of nations. Right. 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 Like, like these things are happening at the same time. Um, and, and so I think that it's totally understandable that Hamilton is blind to this, but he is large or sorry, that Madison, Madison is, largely, is blind. Yeah. Mar, Mar, Madison is largely blind to this and Hamilton uniquely is hip to it. Um, but it is this huge threat. And, and part of why can I, can I just in, in, yeah. inject one, uh, one point? I don't want to, but this is, I think you're so right about this. Um, Madison never throughout his entire life really understood the merchant community and its motives and its potential to really interfere with public policy. And, and I think that the greatest example of this failure on his part is the utter complete and total debacle that was the embargo act of 1807 i was i was just gonna say it's got to be the embargo act right yeah it has to be because they madison and jefferson enact this law and it was originally seen as a temporary measure in response to the attack on the chesapeake like oh we might have to declare war we don't want our boats out on the high sea so everybody come home but madison had wanted for years for decades had wanted a trade war with britain and finally he gets it and they but the problem is is that the law is so badly designed for a trade war and what what happens is is that the merchant community, particularly in New England, which thinks the policy is stupid, uh, just ignores it and just starts trading how easy it is for them to trade with the British. All you have to do is get a boat and sneak it from Boston up to Nova Scotia and you're free and clear. And Madison, even in retirement, blamed the greed of the merchants and which I think is, you know, whatever, you, as I, I think that's a fair moral, you know, violation of the law is not, you know, an appropriate thing, especially laws related to American forward policy. You don't want to be undermining, you know, it's one thing to drive through a red light real quick. It's another thing to like undermine American relations with Great Britain, which is what the merchants were doing. Right. But I don't think Madison ever really appreciated the way in which. Um, the wealthy, if they are not bought, if they are not bought into the system, if they're not bought into the law, they, especially those with money, can get around, not only get around the law, 
but really undermine undermine the law itself. Um, and I and and that I think you're right. And and by the way, it's a similar kind of view that Adams, John Adams has, and Alexander Hamilton has, and like Governor Morris and other people have as sort of the wealthy being, you know, a representation of the natural aristocracy. I think Hamilton sort of saw that more, much more than Adams and a little more than Governor Morris, but all of them saw the wealthy as kind of being a potential problem. Yeah. Um, I mean, Adams is very explicit about this. Yes. He, has, Adams he has this is, fascinating set of, of the different aristocracies that yes. emerge naturally. So he says, yes, there is a natural aristocracy. And by the way, it's a huge problem. <laughs> yes, that's right. And, and Hamilton, I think, is aware. Hamilton, I think, has more faith in the wealthy and the virtue of the wealthy. But, you know, he, I, he ultimately understands because he is a very uh, his, his understanding of moral of human psychology is heavily, heavily influenced uh, by David Hume, which basically means that we have to create habits of mind within the community to get people loyal to the government. And how are these habits originally formed? They're formed by connections founded on self-interest. And so this is a lot of where Hamilton systems comes from. And I think Madison has none of that kind of sympathy, or uh, maybe put it this way. Madison's view is, okay, it's one thing for, you know, getting buy-in for the wealthy, but the wealthy alone, I think that was Madison's main point of criticism of Hamilton's financial program is that it was too narrow in its distribution of benefits. Yeah, yeah. But so so then what you wind up having is you have a you know you have Hamilton who can be perceived understandably by his by by you know people who are skeptical of his program as being a sort of lackey or errand boy for the wealthy who oh by the way did you know he's married to the daughter of one of the wealthiest men in the country right like there there are there are ways to see what Hamilton is doing ungenerously. Yes. And, you know, the fact that he's also a jackass in his interpersonal interactions he really with, is. with people who don't agree with him, frankly, to, to a political mind, it ma- makes it look like he's hiding something. Yeah. Right? He really could rub people the wrong way. And so there, there are good reasons why these folks are so skeptical of what he's doing. On the other hand, during the second session of the first Congress, Hamilton is able to go to the well of the, of the house and function as a prime minister, right? If, if you have ironically Madison going across the, the departmental barrier, the other way to sort of run personnel for Washington, you have Hamilton leaving, going from the executive into the legislature and sort of invading it and acting like a prime minister. That's right. And, and having what is, probably the most productive Congress ever. Maybe one of the new, maybe the second new deal Congress would be uh, in terms of just like raw structurally changing legislation. Um, I mean, it's nuts. I would say the first Congress, the 14th Congress, and then you'd have to get to the new deal Congress. Yeah. The 14th is a good, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a big one. So yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, you know, again, to, I guess, cause we're, you know, we're going to do multiple episodes on this, the, historical formation of early Congress. So I don't want to try to get everything in, in right now, but to say, to sort of summarize, 
the lack of 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 extra constitutional and extra legal organizing institutions, by which we mean political parties, right? Um, the smallness of some of these bodies and their theory of governing being one of of first and foremost, or at least preferably, collaborative and um, more of a division of labor than a a separation of powers, meant that in the case of Madison and Hamilton, you have energetic and assertive efforts to organize and change and build the government, the federal government in a kind of visionary way, and they succeed. And yet the constitutional structure still matters so that when Adams tries to do the same thing in the Senate, he goes nowhere. Yeah. And it's so to continue the story, and again, we didn't want to, we don't want to spend too much time going into the details of Hamilton's program, which we've covered multiple times on this podcast. The point, I think, from an institutional perspective is that opponents of Hamilton's program are not just opponents on it uh, as a policy basis. They oppose it on the basis of executive interference and the use of patronage to try and buy votes, undermining the will of the people. Right. If the House is supposed to be the uh, place where the public will is done and Hamilton's here using basically using bank patronage to buy votes, that's a problem. And so we begin to see as a response among the Republicans, the Jeffersonians, the development of congressional institutions. We see, in fact, two major ones, and I think this is probably kind of the final point of the of the day, but we see in 1791, we see the beginning of American party politics as a permanent institutionalized thing, where with the publication of the National Gazette, which is underway by the winter of 1791 so well like the late fall of 1791 and the the parties as and party development is slow over time it's rapid in certain states and it's slow in others but we see this kind of multifaceted development of parties that is really meant to warn the voters that your member is not he's actually voting for his crony his cronies in the tre- treasury department rather than you. So you, you get things like the newspaper, you get uh, party nominations so that voters know who the party approved candidates are. You get things like circular letters from uh, leaders within the state and things like that. that. Again, and again, in some states, you see virtually no party development. In other states like New York and Virginia, you see very rapid party development. But Party development happens predominantly on the Republican side more quickly and more thoroughly than on the Federalist side. And a lot of the spur of it is this idea of being a a watchful, keeping a watchful eye. So like a good example of this is um, if you ever go into a small town and you see like, I think there was, you know, sometimes newspapers will be called the Argus. Well, what the hell is an Argus? Well, Argus was the mythical creature with like a thousand eyes that kept watch over Zeus when he was a baby, you know, things like that. Like that was sort of the idea. We got to keep a watch on these guys. Got to watch them. And and so you begin to see now, and again, it's very slow process, but this kind of inchoate 
purely personal interdynamic fluidity of the first Congress begins even in the second session to give way to more, you know, stricter party lines and things like actual head counting and things like that. So Madison goes from being, you know, the leader of the house to being the leader of the minority faction within Congress. So that's one big development. The other big development is the creation of the first standing committee that still exists today, which is the committee on ways and means, which is developed in the 1790s by Madison and also Albert Gallatin. And it's developed as a way, and we're going to talk about this in later episodes, as a way for Congress to beef up its policy expertise so that Congress is not simply doing whatever the Treasury Department wants it to do. Because the way Hamilton's program was enacted, Hamilton would submit like, and I'm not kidding, I'm not exaggerating when I say, you know, like a 30,000 word report that was just unbelievable in its level of detail. And they would just Pass it. We we agree. And so this is where you begin to see the development of committees as a threat to executive interference. So in a lot of respects, which is really kind of interesting, you kind of see this development of politics according to the way Madison weirdly predicted in Federalist 51. The executive is getting a little too handsy, so the the legislative branch is going to put up some guardrails to keep it out of its business. You know, Washington does the same thing. The House in um, the 1796, I want to say 1795, 96, asked George Washington, we want to see all the communications and correspondence with regard to this Jay Treaty because we think it's all a scam. And Washington says, no. You know, F you. Uh, guess what? He, the, now there's this thing called, uh, you know, executive privilege. That's not what he called it, but that's what it was when he told the House to go pound sand. I'm not giving you our private diplomatic correspondences because that's part of the nature of the executive branch is communicating with foreign governments. We're not going to tell you stuff like that. So you begin to see as politics. Now, there's this moment in 1789 that's almost sort of weirdly free of politics because the anti-federalists are just blown out of the water, but it doesn't last very long. And as into the 1790s, we get the development of politics and we begin to see politics and political conflict being a spur to institutional development. Yeah, I think that's right. I think so. So there's, I I think there are, okay, I don't, I think we should wrap up because we've gone an hour. And we we don't we we promised Sarah and others we would not do another two hour long episode. And let's put it this way: I think over the course of this, we're first we're going to run into Hamilton's success birthing the structural response to him in the form of the committee system, which checks the executive and prevents him from playing a prime ministerial role. And then subsequent to that, you will see the Senate kind of try to be the cabinet in cabinet government and Washington will be frustrated and shove the Senate away in order to kind of insulate the executive from the legislature. And that's where we'll start to see these, these what become path dependent and more probably structurally inevitable divisions between the branches. And yet the potential for, for collaboration and division of labor remains even to this day. And, um, and I think certainly psychologically, 
the the found the founding generation or the, the generation that fills the first Congress never goes beyond that vision. And frankly, we would do okay to get back to it. Anyway, I will leave. <laughs> I will leave it there. Um, yeah, I think we'll that's a good place up. to leave. Yeah, it. we'll pick it back up with the committees next time. And we'll yeah, just we'll do one committees. We'll, we'll do that next time. And just as a personal note, I think Luke and I are back to be being in the glad to be back in the swing of things. We hope you're enjoying this, um, and we will see you. Uh, well, we won't see you, but we hope you will join us next time for our continued look at the historical Congress. 